Willie Nelson, these guys are just giving the finger to Nashville. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elpstrom. And let's welcome music authority Hunter Stare from the Beyond Rot podcast. Be prepared to be uh, disappointed. I don't know if music authority is the exact term I would use. But Hunter, uh, Obsessive? I would say obsessive. That would be <laughs> and but Hunter, because you were born in Texas, you are a Texan. So yeah. I gonna... was I was born in Texas. Yes, I spent a, maybe a year of my life here. The first year still counts. It counts. It's in the still blood. Uh, it was part of that. Um, my my parents moved here. Part of that, like uh, late seventies, early eighties, Houston oil boom. I think we've all seen uh, the movie Urban Cowboy, so we're well yeah, familiar exactly with that. that. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I was born. Awesome. <laughs> On the back of a mechanical bull. All right. They talk about gillies. They still talk about gillies. <laughs> oh, boy. That's awesome. <laughs> Today, we examine Red-Headed Stranger, Willie Nelson's critically regarded concept album following the tale of a fugitive on the run and which shot Willie into superstardom. But first, who's your favorite yacht or nyat rocker from Texas? Well, I'm just going to jump ahead and say Christopher Cross because that's really the only name that I recognize from that category. I'm a music novice. He's probably the most famous. He's probably the most famous from Texas. Yeah, yeah. he's an easy one to pick. Yes. I'm going to throw down, he's not born here, but we're going to call him Texan enough to account for this, Mr. Boz Skaggs. And, uh, you know, you spend enough time with Steve Miller, you, you get that that uh, Texas stamp of approval. Um <laughs> Yeah, he had Low Down, he had the Lido Shuffle, a lot of big hits. Uh, very and, and and he's the guy who put Toto together. Oh wow! It was wow. It, it was on the Low Down album or the Silk Degrees album, excuse me. That he he got most of Toto, and then when they went on tour, all of Toto was there, minus Mike Picaro, um, who later joined. And so he was kind of kept out of the band because after they got off the road, they said, "Hey." Let's all stay together and find a singer and become Toto. And you and you say you're not a music authority. Well, yeah. this is the one thing I'm <laughs> an authority on. He, was 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 Lukather in the band at the time? He was. Uh-huh. Yes. Everybody. It was um, everybody but Bobby Kimball, I believe. He was. They brought him in to sing because nobody could really sing. Yeah. Awesome. Wow. Well, I'm going to go yacht adjacent. Uh, with England Dan and John Bell Cooley. Now, England Dan and John Bell Cooley were part of our Texas Rock uh, episode a few months ago. And uh, for their song, um, I Really Want to See You Tonight. And they were very de- conclusively and decisively declared not yacht by, not yacht by the uh, Beyond Yacht Rock podcast. However, I believe that Love is the Answer, which was another one of their hits, is a yacht song or at least yacht adjacent um when when was that made 77 it's the closing it's the closing track on the 77 album oops wrong planet okay and todd rundgren actually i'm sorry it was made it was 77 for todd rundgren and it was a cover uh, and then england dan and john bell cooley covered it in 79 so may of 79 And and what and do you know what album it was on uh it was on was it dr heckle and mr jive I believe so, Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive. Okay, okay. Well, 
Todd Rundgren's not Yacht Rock because yeah, he, he's doing Philly Soul and he does mm-hmm. a little art prog and space stuff. Very much not Yacht Rock. But that album, Dr. Hecklin, Mr. Jive, is it, it is their Yacht Rock album. They mm-hmm. do have Yacht Rock on that album. So that's that's pretty close. I will say that. So, yes, they are Yacht Rockers, very briefly. Yeah, I'm gonna, where's, uh, I'm gonna have to superimpose the sound of like a big tugboat horn going like <laughs> over you, Sean. <laughs> well, uh, what was? Uh, let's see. We got Greg Fillingaines, who's a Philly, oh. or, uh, who's a yacht soul guy. He was on yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, oh wait, Lukather was. He was. So uh, he, I, I have to listen to it again. Uh, this is a good yacht or yacht. Right. But the, definitely... the, the lyrics are the lyrics are not straightforward. They're not. They're not uh, love letters lyrics um and they're a little uh, more, more of a jd thing i'm i'm really yeah i know i know but i i mean when you get into you know you got you got your you got your pillars of of yacht rock you know involved I'll, in the song you know what for today i'll give it to you for sure <laughs> all right awesome that is, awesome. Their, that is their yacht rock album that that dr heckle and mr jive i've also i've always talked about that and so okay. that that is the one you want to check out when mm. you that. Yeah, There's uh, also, you know, he, you know, I'll tell you this, Hunter. Sean ca- called me one day, not long after he started listening to your show. I turned him on on the show. He got to listen to this. He called me up and he said, "Am I the, am I the Hollywood Steve of our podcast?" <laughs> I told him that. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. England Dan's brother, uh, mm. one of the other seals with seals and crofts, mm. mostly not. Because of their and really their proto yacht, because they were there, they came from Texas and went to California, got into religion in the early seventies. Um, but they did have a bit of a comeback, and so if you check out their their uh, album "Longest Road" from nineteen eighty, there is some yacht rocky stuff on that. So they are very very close. They came back with a little bit of yacht rock. Those guys are from Texas, and the the guy that everybody forgets about who did do Yacht Rock, at least three albums that had some some decent stuff on it, is Kenny Rogers. Well, yeah. But Kenny Rogers oh. was a part-time Yacht Rocker in the 80s. Okay. I can buy that. I, I, I generally consider him to country, uh, 70s country, but... Well, but you that, gotta understand. Well, I mean, he was a rocker early. That's true. That's true. You know, he, he jumped in and he went through different phases and he did mm-hmm. have a Yacht Rock phase. In, uh, let's see, uh, I had it written down. Um, Did he park his yacht on the island in the stream? <laughs> I, you know, we just had a discussion about whether or not that was uh, Yacht Rock or not. Um, that was when he was he was working with the Bee Gees. Yes. So we, d- we decided that wasn't Yacht Rock. But right before that, he was working with Yacht Rockers. And then his next two albums... He did yacht. Rock, he worked with yacht rockers again. So that was he was he was feeling that sort of pop music stuff at that time. Well, I'm I'm gonna I, I'm I gonna feel validated. <laughs> well, I'm gonna pause this part of it because I I honestly it's a bit like having um I I know Scott's not as much into the into you know if this is a Pearl Jam discussion I think we'd be way down the rabbit hole now but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're no. gonna pull ourselves out of the hunnel. Okay, we're gonna pull ourselves out of the hunnel. We're gonna get out of the Steve hole. We're gonna we're gonna move ahead on this one because uh, we could sit here and, and digress around this for hours. Uh, <laughs> now that we got you on the line, it's like oh, I'm gonna ask him these questions. We talked about the amazing Willie Nelson two years ago in our two-parter history of the man, but today we're gonna take a look at his seminal work, Redheaded Stranger. But first, a recap. 
At the turn of the 1970s, Willie Nelson was an amazing songwriter, pinning several great songs as well as a number of albums in Nashville. After several years, though, he just never quite fit into the Nashville mold. Following these years of frustration, he quote-unquote retired in 1972 and moved to Austin. In 1973, he was signed to the new country division at Atlantic and was given much more creative freedom to produce music the Willie way. So let's take a second to talk about what, what happened in the 60s with Willie Nelson. So, you know, you have, he wrote songs like Crazy. I mean, you he, he, he look at everything he wrote. He's, he's this brilliant songwriter. And he was friends with all of these big, big songwriters and big stars of the of the Nashville scene. So he was really similarly part of that scene. But he didn't really sound, he didn't really fit in in a lot of ways. I mean, if Willie Nelson's voice is distinctive, but that, that those early, there's early albums and songs and singles. Like he sings all over the beat. He's got a real weird tune voice. So he, he didn't quite fit in to that sound that Nashville evolved in the 60s. Was Willie Nelson primarily a songwriter first? Yeah, because he, he wrote for a lot of other people, right? Yeah, he, he did, and he 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 was a, a started out as a disc jockey. He played music on the air. He he gigged around a little. He just kicked around and did a little bit of everything. But he was such a uh, he was very good at turning a tune and, and writing songs. So he just had an ear for that. And he you know, there's a, a new collection, a new two part collection that just came out of a lot of his old demos from the early Nashville days. And so they have all these raw demos that you can listen to. Um, and it's on Spotify. It's a fantastic collection. But he just, yeah. you know, the, the, the point of this is, is that Willie just didn't fit the mold and he was never happy uh, with what was happening in Nashville. I could imagine it's because he's writing songs for other people and when he, about time he finds his voice for himself, which is probably at this era that he gets jaded from Nashville's when he really needs to leave. Yeah, I, I would say that he went to Nashville to follow his dreams and couldn't get the success he was looking for because his voice didn't fit in. I don't think it's so much that he couldn't find his voice. I think he had his voice and it just didn't fit into the mold. But he was able to sell the songs and make a living. And, you know, Nashville Nashville had an edge. I mean, if you listen to the the bluegrass and the early country songs of the 1940s and early 50s, there was an edge to Nashville that was kind of dangerous. I mean, the Leuven Brothers were a famous bluegrass group on the Grand Ole Opry, and one of their biggest hits is called Knoxville Girl, and it's about a man who murders a girl in the woods. Um, and there's... There's other songs about uh, divorce. Tammy Wynette's D-I-V-O-R-C-E. Hank Williams' songs are, are, are about you know a lot of depression and, and uh, Marty Robbins singing about gunfighters. So there was an edge to Nashville, but I think in the mid-60s, Nashville really started to, to shift hard right and it became so formulaic in response to popular culture changing. It didn't change and, and it, it entrenched itself into forms that were old-fashioned and and willie bucked against that as well and you know mike we we talked about willie the the tragedies not just the tragedies just the horrible times he went through in nashville with his home and his family and and with drinking yeah true true and uh, a lot of that's documented in the episode willie's first effort for atlantic was this album shotgun willie it had a looser and more rollicking sound and feel than his previous set output. He recorded this album in New York City with his own band, as well as Doug Somm and Augie Myers from the Sir Douglas Arthur Quintet, 
And they recorded this album after they'd recorded some songs for an initially failed gospel album. He then recorded Phases and Stages, which was a concept album, and it told the story of a divorce from both a female and a male perspective. And these represented the A and B sides of the, the album. Now, both of these albums were really well received by the press, but they didn't generate the financial success that Atlantic wanted to see. And so uh, the Etrigan brothers closed the label. Um, this critical success, though, it allowed Willie to negotiate a new contract with Columbia Records, and they gave him total and complete artistic freedom. Now, that year, 1975, he also recorded the album Wanted, The Outlaws, and it was recorded in Nashville, but with Waylon Jennings, Jesse Coulter, and Tomple Glazer, and it really coalesced the ideals and mindset of the style uh, that defined the name and the aesthetic of the Outlaws. Okay, so let's just take a break and talk about what exactly outlaw country means, what it what it is as a genre and a, and a definition, because we always think of the the big names of outlaw country. But but what do you you know in your mind what is outlaw country, Hunter? Well, first off, it's a rejection of Nashville, which we just talked about, and having the giant orchestral backings and and huge productions also it's discussing sort of the dark side of life a little bit um and a a lot of things are uh they lived and so it's a lot of uh, truth in their own lives it's it's also i think going back to and this goes to the podcast i think it goes back to a lot of uh country music that would come out of texas rather than uh, Nashville, or uh, maybe there's a little bit of Appalachian in there, but as far as like say the Genteel South, it's kind of it's it's back to basically acoustic guitars and uh, singing s- story right. songs with your friends. Well, I, one thing I found interesting, and, and we haven't even really we're about to start talking about Redhead is Stranger. I promise we'll get to it, folks. But um, you know, the if you look at the charts in '75. You had Eddie Rabbit on the charts. You had Ronnie Millsap, John Denver. You had Olivia Newton-John was on the country charts uh, with Please, Mr. Please. And, of course, like there's that Convoy song that everyone knows, you know. Breaker, breaker. Um, The 70s were weird. I just, I feel like if you look at the... 70s of music and I love a lot of these songs and these some of these songs by these artists but honestly if you look at it I mean you know this was when Rhinestone Cowboy and all this crap started to hit and it's just <laughs> like this is what it sort of was like the death of hair metal this was what allowed grunge to come along and I think destroy hair metal was that you had this super overproduced country it was really rollicking in this crash commercial crass commercialism and uh you know that's what Willie Nelson, these guys are just giving the finger to Nashville, and I and it, I think that's part of what makes it great. Yeah, it's and, definitely anti-establishment for sure. Right. Uh, the the other thing I wanted to add is, and we'll see this in the in the Redhead Stranger album, is that Outlaw Country was informed by more than just country and western. It was informed by folk, by gospel, by the blues. So by other music than than the self recursive nature of Nashville at that time. It was also influenced by rock and roll too, because oh yeah, absolutely. All those guys had long hair, yeah. And I mean, they they all grew their hair long, and that was I think that's that was that's pretty significant in country music, especially at that time. Oh yeah, and beards. Most of them got beards too. Beards too. <laughs> beards are important. Yeah. His new creative freedom set the stage for his next album, the one that would finally prove his breakthrough. When he returned from a skiing vacation in Colorado with his then wife Connie. 
Willie was inspired to write a Western-themed concept album. He'd always played Arthur Smith's Tale of the Red-Headed Stranger, both for his children at bedtime and when he worked in radio in his early career. Not only is Willie Nelson a true red-headed stranger, but it's also a strong story full of imagery and excitement, and it gave him his inspiration for the album. The biggest thing that Nelson wanted to do was to get away from the slickly produced sound that dominated Nashville, and even some of his first Outlaw records. He also wanted his new album recorded and mastered right here in the Lone Star State. A new studio had opened in Garland, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas, and Nelson was given free studio time to try it out. He decided to record the whole album there, and he stripped down the instrumentation and had the engineer remove all the additional equalization on his voice. The result was a lean, sparse sound that really sounds almost like an extended demo, but the results are intensely personal. The song themselves were a combination of original pieces and covers arranged to build the thematic mood of the album. Now, I will throw in a note here before we start talking about the album itself that uh, when the record executives got the final product from Willie, um, <laughs> they literally said, this sounds like a demo recorded in somebody's living room. And he and <laughs> Willie said, it's perfect. <laughs> it, was a very Ed Wood, it was a very Ed Wood moment, I think, for all of the record producers in that, in that room that they had given yeah. this man creative control. Yeah. I read that um, other country musicians were actually jealous after the album came out because of how um, sort of non-produced it was, and they wished they all wished they had that freedom and they didn't have it. It's something. It's something exceptional. So I think we'll uh, we'll walk through the the track list on the album and just kind of throw out a little bit of of sort of our impressions or some thoughts around it. So the album opens with a song, "Time of the Preacher." In this, the narrator evokes his love for his wife, whom he suspects is unfaithful. Now, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, it's, it's him and his guitar, just kind of his nasally... It's weird to describe his voice, because you describe it, and it sounds like you're describing something terrible. You're like, it's kind of nasally, it's kind of... It's just, it's Willie's voice. Yeah, and, th- and this is the theme, really, to the album. It's, it's actually, the song is not... This is not the complete song. The song is broken into multiple parts throughout the album, or at least through the first half of the album. So the first part of this song, he's talking about that he has discovered that his wife is unfaithful. And it's a very, yeah, it's a very strange feel and a very strange mood. And and I guess he is supposed to be a preacher. The, the stranger is supposed to be a preacher. I'm not sure. It's kind of open to interpretation. But his wife has left him. And he, he howls like a ba- he cries like a baby and he howls like a panther. That's just that's a pretty evocative well it, lyric. It, it sets the tone too because it it feels like a you know it feels like the opening of a cowboy movie the way it opens it it really sets the table for sort of what you're gonna get from this album. So it you know it doesn't open with like a big searing steel guitar solo and a bunch of soaring strings. I mean it's. It's just Willie's guitar, sort of, and him just singing a very simple song. Yeah. And it's and, sort of a third-party narration, or, uh, yeah, it's a it's a narration, because his, his character kind of narrates the story as we go on, along, but this is definitely a third-person narration that sets, as you said, sets the mood. It also gives you a sense of place and uh, the emotional state of his character, and it also gives you the conflict right off at the top 
But I find it in interesting as we move forward that this is kind of actually further along the story. It starts further along in the story than like the next song goes backwards in time. Mm -hmm. So yeah. we're so we're setting we're setting him almost exactly at the moment of of his conflict and he's and kind of cluing us in on what's going on at the time. Yeah, it's kind of like the uh, the old trope of the the record scratch and the freeze frame. I bet you're wondering how I got here. That's, what it <laughs> That's exactly what it. Yeah. Well, he next moves into I couldn't believe it was true, which is a super fast. Uh, you know, I couldn't believe it's true. It's true. I couldn't believe it's true, and it, it moves along really quickly. Um, but it actually is. It's this upbeat major keyed song, but it it's him catching them in the act. Yeah. Um, was he catch? Did he catch him in the act? It, I thought he. Or is it that he? She just wasn't there, and so, yeah. and so he left, and then caught him. I was trying to figure that yeah, out. Yeah, I think I think the way I interpreted it more it was that he, he's he's struggling in with this this idea and this notion. Well, I think here's one thing I think about. I couldn't believe it. Maybe it's not that he catches them in the act, but it's it's the validation. Of that, yeah, yeah. that he knows now he knows that she's right. cheating and left is leaving. Yeah, because she's not there. She right. would normally be there. But I yeah. think that first song was actually took place after this song. So this song is the first thing where he's. This is his first realization that she's she's not at home. She's somewhere else with somebody, and it's that first song where it's now he's going that's my realization that she's cheating on me and then as we move to the next songs he progresses forward see where do you right where do you yes. constructing this thing like primer yeah so yeah the, the first the first chorus the first verse of i couldn't believe it was true was well last night i came home and i knocked on my door and i called to my love as i off had before and i knocked and I knocked and no answer he came no kisses to greet me or voice call my name so i think hunter's right that that that, that song that I couldn't believe it was true, which is an Eddie Eddie Arnold song. It was a actually kind of a popular song from about a decade before. It's about yeah he he's he's come home to find his house empty and his his love gone. And so then in the time of the preacher, you know he had, he says well, he loved her so deeply he went out of his mind when she left him for someone she left behind. So I think yeah the, the time of the preacher that song it bridges the different parts of the story and the first part of it is this notion that this woman that he loves so much was gone and now now he's wrestling with that well we go back then after that to the uh, a reprise of time of the preacher so it's very similar to what it sounds but the ending of that one is now the lesson is over and the killing's begun so we go back to the narrator and again the narrator's foreshadowing that there's going to be a killing yeah this is the third party narration too yeah the third person, whereas the second one was more the the character narration. Mm -hmm. well, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, so it's it's the same tune, but it's got a little different lyrics. Next, we jump into the Blue Rock of Montana, and the first part of this just describes how there's a double murder of the unfaithful woman in her and in this lover by the stranger who is now we're we're talking, who's now actually telling the, his story of how he killed him. Uh, but that song ends with this great line, and they died with a smile on their faces because he shot them so quickly 
he's found them smiling at each other in a bar, and, and he shot them both dead so fast that they didn't even get a chance to, to react. So I yeah. guess that's kind of nice in a way. <laughs> they, <laughs> they didn't suffer. <laughs> they didn't see it coming. Yeah. They didn't see it coming. And then it goes into... Um, but, but it but it does... I mean, that song, this song really evokes this mood of menace and and just shock of, you know, you can just... It, it is really like a movie. You can see him walking into this tavern and seeing his wife and this man there and just pulling out his gun and gunning him down, you know, like the saint of preachers from... From the from the preacher's well, comic book, yeah, 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 and I mean, in, and then of course there's a, a little late tack on a little bit of the redheaded stranger at the end of this song, um, and it just kind of talks about his grief and sadness. Now we'll stop here and say there is historical precedent. We did an episode very early in the show uh, about a shootout called the fracas at Dalyville, and uh, it the the that sheriff who was at the uh, who was the deputy who became the sheriff. His name was Fate Elder. And uh, in all the descriptions, he, he was a, a red-haired, like bright, he had bright red hair and a big red beard, um, and so was involved in a pretty. There was a pretty big, brutal shootout with that. So I just I, I started going like, that's a great story about this shootout with this red-headed stranger. So um, I don't know. And it's interesting that this is basically at the end of this is the I would say the end of Act One, mm-hmm. where the the character becomes the redheaded stranger. Mm-hmm. So if that's the historical context of, he's basically become the killer he's at that point. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. become the oh, bad yeah. guy. Well, he goes, he goes into to Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, which was the big number one hit from this album, and probably the one song that he, he still performs more than any of the other songs on this album, I would imagine. And it's a fantastic rendition. It's a cover of an old Fred Rose song. But in the context of this story... He's the blue-eyed, red-headed stranger who's crying in the rain, and you understand that he's he's lamenting that loss. So it's just it's it's again it's, but it's interesting that he takes these old tunes, that he takes these sort of folky ideas, and he sort of arranges them into this story. So there are these story songs, but he puts them in the arc of a bigger story and manages to string them together with his own little pieces. Yeah, and they're very sparse arrangements, and they're not they're not flowing orchestral arrangements. So. You know, they evoke the mood of, of despair. Um, and the song is, is just so tragic sounding. So that we wind down to the end of the, the first side, and it's the red-headed stranger who does the full version of this song. But in this one, he kills another woman. Um, and this time, she's a, a whore that he thought was going to steal his horse. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because that was his horse's old wife. Which and, is legal. His wife's was legal. <laughs> which, which was legal. Yeah, that's the best part is, is like... You can't hang a man for killing a woman who's trying to steal your horse. <laughs> so in, he's now in eighteen seventy one you cannot you were allowed to do that. In night two thousand sixteen you cannot yeah. kill a woman just for touching your, your dead wife's horse. But he's yeah, he's he's come into town and he's he's this apparition of terror and horror. I mean they talk that his eyes like thunder and he's he's you know, the woman who wants to steal his horse, she's scared of him and his, his big black horse that he's on. But she wants the bay, the small dancing bay pony that was his wife's. And uh, yeah, so he's he's now committed three murders. Um, and he's just got a he's got a heart full of grief and rage and sorrow at what he's become. It's also the first uh, 
Breaking Breaking Bad uh, story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Descent, it is. It's a descent into wickedness. And this is his full... He's he's fully become the red-headed stranger at this point. Right. right, but then you have an interesting transition. The last tradition of the time of the preacher occurs again. And then you have the very old um, hymn, uh, Just As I Am. And it's just an instrumental. And it's a hymn of redemption. Um, and it's it's actually four measures of this hymn, and it starts very simply and very mournfully, and it gradually softens and adds more musical instruments. And I I got the 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 feeling of like brokenness from this character at sorrow over his his actions and his deeds, and so now he's not necessarily a figure of vengeance and rage; he's a figure of resigned depression of He's not able to love again. He's just having to come before his maker as a sinner and as a person who's who's just at the bottom, at the very rock bottom. So this is how the first half of the album ends. Yeah. Something I, I interpreted uh, on Just As I Am is that that song is represents passage of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you if you listen to it, it's um, you would put this in a movie over a montage of somebody going. West, leaving home and going west, essentially. Oh, yeah. So he's like, um, like he's walking, he's riding his horse past this mountain vista and through the snow and then through the heat. Growing and, a beard. Yeah, exactly. That makes yeah. sense. That's that's how that's how I heard that song. Hmm. Is that it was a time is now passing at this point. Well, the next song is called Denver, and it is a really Nelson song. And it's a very short, simple song, but it's he goes to a tavern in, in this town of Denver, and he meets a pretty girl, um, and they begin dancing. And the interesting thing about this song is the song has elements, like the, the actual music itself, has elements both of the song Yesterday's Wine, which was an earlier Willie Nelson song, but also the Kneeling Drunkard's Plea, which is a country standard about a, a broken drunkard man uh, alcoholics plea to god to help him get up from his from his stupor of of addiction and um actually willie performed this probably many times but the other interesting thing is that one of the lines from the the killing song is repeated but it has a variation it says they dance with a smile on their faces so i think that this song is like this is the beginning of the the move back up in his the character's story arc well, I think Denver, you know, I mean, you've hit it. I mean, that, this is the thing is it's pretty obvious, like, this is where you turn the album over. And the first half was the descent into madness and the, you know, and the hero, the first half of the hero's journey, uh, which we'll talk about that in a little bit. But but then now we're on side B. So now it now comes the redemption. So clearly he meets the person that's going to, to bring him back into the light. He meets this lady in Denver. Um, yeah. but, and I would say the lyrics, you know, talking about dancing with the smiles on their faces, uh, kind of mirrors, you know, when he shot his wife mm-hmm. and her lover and they died with their smiles on their faces. So right. it's kind of a nice parallel there. Well, nobody said he was a bad writer. <laughs> well, then the next two songs are actually instrumental songs again, and it's of them dancing. Uh, one of them is a very, very famous uh, Mexican waltz called... Uh, over the waves or sobre las olas. Yeah, um, a lot of very famous. Mm-hmm. 
Right, very famous Mexican waltz. The second one is an is an instrumental ragtime song um, from the 1920s called "Down Yonder." And Sister Bobby, who's Willie Nelson's sister Bobby, plays this song. And it's I think I, it's I think it's awesome. We did a Hunter. We did an episode earlier this year on Scott Joplin and uh, the history of ragtime. And and like this song just took me right back to that ragtime piano. It's sound. an interesting choice for the album. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, it comes out of nowhere, really. Well, you know, I think he talked about, uh, in an interview I'd read with Willie, he talked about, you know, people thought, that, people in Nashville thought that there was certain kind of music, and he's like, I've been driving around and, and meeting with people, and people are hungry for old, for, for something that they've lost in in this old old music. And he is a weird historian of that. I mean, he he's done a whole tribute to Gershwin. He did his Stardust album. You know, he's not afraid to dip into old and very different music catalogs, but it fits into the story. And it's kind of nice that it jars you out. Also, I think maybe it's just a little hat tip to his sister, too. She's stuck with him through the years. Well, and the, the, the story is set, you know, the beginning of the story is the year the time of the preacher was the, the year of 01. So the night set in 1901. So Hunter, going back to what she said, is just as I am as the passage of time, yeah, that you know, sounds like it too. Right. So this could be 20 years later, 18, 19, 20 years later, and this would have been a popular song at the time. Down Yonder was first released in 1920. So the passage of time has passed. He's met a new woman. He's dancing and he's re, re, he's returning to life. Mm-hmm. Well, he's it, probably settling also. I think yeah. he's, I think this is, this is a lot of this is he's settling in, in probably must be Denver at this point. He had a good time there, so he's going to settle. This would be a good music that you play while you're building a house. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Oh yeah, they could, it could be like a it could be like a transition thing. They start dancing in the tavern, and then then they're dancing in their new home. Well, then the next part. I mean, in a modern movie, this would be "Take My Breath Away" by Berlin, because <laughs> but he sings a song called "Can I Sleep in Your Arms," and it's really just new lyrics written to um, Red River Valley. Yes. So he it takes a very, again, takes a very familiar tune, puts a whole new set of lyrics to it, gives it a new context, and an even bigger context in the overall work. Yeah, so he does the, uh, you know, can I sleep in your arms tonight, lady? And what I like about this one is, is it's just, it's very simple. Again, everything's so stripped down. You just, there's a, um, you hear in this album, the one thing I, do, I did actually enjoy hearing when you really listen to it is, uh, there's a just a, a just a, just a sprinkle of bass harmonica in there. It's a weird instrument that, like, um, Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys loved. Because you hear a ton in that and not much else. So well, the first the first couple of verses are um, a cappella, aren't they? Or is that where you just barely hear that harmonica in the background? Uh, it's in a couple. Of, no, it's in a couple of the bouncier songs. Like it's in Down okay. Yonder, I think, and and it shows up. But uh, in this one, it uh, I don't know that they have it in this one. But this one, yeah, it's very stripped down, and it's just him kind of singing with his guitar, and there's very little instrumentation in it. But so then after that, then so we have this song to his new love. Then he does the song to his old love, which is "Remember Me." Well, I'd like to say in the "Can I Sleep in Your Arms" thing. Mm-hmm. Um, in in I interpreted that a lot of that song was. It wasn't just that he was search. He found new love and what, what and all that stuff. Is that he was actually willing to become vulnerable again? This character, because he was vulnerable at the start and he was betrayed. But this was his acknowledgement of I'm willing to 
basically put my life in your hands like I did before, hoping that I will not be betrayed this time type of thing. He's, he's learning to live again. Oh, he's Sorry like, to bring everybody down. Well, no, 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 that's no, perfect. It's perfect. Um, and, think, and that's that goes back <laughs> to the outlaw music that these, these people lived. They, they're telling stories about living and about life, about the dark side of life and what it means to have a dark side. You can't even have a light side without a dark side. So. Well, most of them were open wounds. Yeah. He's got these <laughs> these outlaw country musicians were open wounds. Right. Well, the only other song that would have fit in there would have been Barry Manilow's Ready to Take a Chance Again. That might have worked in there. Too. <laughs> uh, it's a good song. It is a good song. I don't care what I don't care what you say. I like that song. Uh, so it ends with this the last song on there is this song Hands on the Wheel. And that's just about how the once a stranger, now he's just an old man, and uh, he has a, some child with him. We assume it's his grandson, is sort of what we think. Um, but this is sort of the end of his sorrow, and it's, he's driving in a car with his grandson and sharing this moment. And it, it's, a, it's a redemption song. Um, so so he's, had, he's had the ability to be vulnerable again and to trust someone with his heart, you can't sleep in your arms, and he's forgiven his his wife, his first wife, for her betrayal, and he's allowed himself to forgive himself uh, for remember me. And hands on the wheel is he's found contentment. He's, he is now complete at the end of his life. Well, and this is the thing, yeah, and 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 he has a car, and he has horse. a car, so it clearly probably a Model T, the, but it's yeah. the passage of time. Uh, and then there's an instrumental at the very end. And that was the album that was released. There were actually some additional songs that were recorded as part of the session and weren't released as part of the album. And there is like a deluxe extended edition, but uh, we're talking about the vinyl, the pressed vinyl this from is, 75. This is such a tight album. I mean, it is. it fits together just seamlessly. There's no... Like I, I listened to it on Spotify in, in my commute on Monday, and I actually it actually started the album over again, looped back in, and I didn't even notice that it started over again. I was like, oh wait, I'm in time of preacher again, um, but it it just flows together so beautifully. Yeah, I mean, so uh, before we move on to the next section, I'll just go around the room and say like, you know, uh, do you think it's worth listening to to our? I mean, because we last week we. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the town that dreaded sundown, and we said you don't need to see that movie. <laughs> <laughs> but this album, please don't. But this album, uh, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this is this is good stuff. I, I don't think I would not recommend this to anyone. I mean, I'd say this album's only thirty minutes long. That even if you even if you didn't like it, it's it's that you're not uh you're not gonna lose too much life listening to it. So right. the worst yeah. case scenario is you you just you, you know you move on. Um, but I think it's it's pretty um, an amazing album, and it's quick and there's something to be said about that, and it tells a story and um it's it's definitely an it's a, it feels like an easy read, like I would describe yeah. a, a book. That this is an easy listen. Mm. Yeah, it's it's not G-rated though. It's not it's not PG. It's it, it's got strong themes to have to deal with, but I think it's worth it. 
Well, there's no explicit sticker on the album cover. That's the good news. <laughs> no, it's no a little less but hard. There is, there is three murders in the song. I mean, you can't get away. Yeah, it's a little less hard than the Ghetto Boys, which we haven't figured out a way to talk about them on the show yet. Uh, <laughs> the album was an instant success. It hit number one on the country charts and spent 43 weeks on the mainstream Billboard chart, peaking at number 28. It was certified gold that year and eventually went double platinum. The album was a highly reviewed and well-regarded record by almost every music critic. Rolling Stone gave it five stars, while Texas Monthly critic Chet Flippo said, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Willie. Willie Nelson's latest album is more than good country music. It's almost gospel. The alternative news magazine Mother Jones wrote, Texans have known for 15 years what redheaded stranger finally revealed to the world, that Nelson is simply too brilliant a songwriter, interpreter, and singer, just too damn universal to be defined as merely a country artist. Rolling Stone ranks the album as 184 on the top 500 albums of all time, and in 2006, CMT Magazine named it the number one country album of all time. Thanks to the album's success, a script was written by Nelson's friend screenwriter William Whitliffe. Universal Pictures bought it and offered the project to Robert Redford, who turned it down. After several years, Nelson bought the script back from Universal and tried to get HBO to produce it with director Sam Peckinpah, but that fell apart. In the end, Willie and the writer Whitliffe financed and made the picture themselves, filming it in 1986 on his ranch on the Perdinales. It has okay reviews, but it has an exceptional cast including Morgan Fairchild, R.G. Armstrong, and an early credit for our number one favorite Texas actor, Sonny Carl Davis, because he was simply amazing in the movie Bernie. Yeah, Hunter, we have an obsession with Richard Linklater movies, so... <laughs> and the strange characters that are in them. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, Hunter, as a as an old-school 101-er, um, how do you feel, and this is probably more of a JD thing, but how do you feel this fits into the Dan Harmon story cycle? Story, I'm sorry, Dan Harmon story circle. Uh, I was, the, the hero with a thousand faces? The, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, his take on that, yeah. I mean, I'd really, I'd have to look at it. I I think it definitely has moments in there. Um, it's a, it's interesting how um, at the midpoint, it, it does a total sort of tone shift. And so he, do, I don't know if he necessarily returns hmm. at the end, if he, if he returns and change and changes he do, he doesn't he doesn't I I it's 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 interesting it almost sounds like in the last song where he's he's close to death so it's it's very far down the road as far as a character arc I think it it kind of flows but as I mean you can only do so much on an album I think it I think it fits pretty well it it takes it takes some risks with his character because he he definitely um is he's ex, he's not he's not a hero because he's his uh, call to action is really. A, a double murder. That's true. So, <laughs> so it true. Does, I mean, you couldn't turn this into uh, a new hope. Um, right, right. Well, it doesn't fit exactly into Campbell's mold, mold. and that's right. deep. We're way off in the screenwriting n- nerd <laughs> nerd hole here. But, um, well, you know, but as here, far as exploring that character of the red the redheaded stranger, I think. Um. As doing a full arc on that, you know, he's not, he's the stranger, he turns into the redheaded stranger, 
And then he learns to not be that anymore. And then he becomes back to sort of what he was. So yeah, I'd, I'd say it fits pretty well. Okay. And, and my other question for you is, would a driving synth have made this album even better? Uh, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> that's, that's just, a, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe. No. depends yeah. on, a, de- I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe in the, the dance scene, maybe, <laughs> I mean, Dennis DeYoung was pretty busy right about this time, 1975. Sticks pretty- was really about to break. So, oh, I want to talk about the cultural impact of this album because if you got to think about it, Rolling Stone gave it five stars. They didn't give any Led Zeppelin album <laughs> five stars ever. That the fact that music critics were calling this otherworldly, and I, I agree with that. This album sounds like it's from another planet. And when you think about, like you said, Eddie Rabbit and Crystal Gale and and Ronnie Millsap, John and Mil- Ronnie Millsap, what they were recording, even what Johnny Cash was recording at the time, this album drops, and it's like, it's it's punk. I mean, it's really like it's <laughs> punk country because it's so stripped down and raw and real and bare in its in its emotion. Y- you can even set it just right up next to Shotgun Willie. Shotgun Willie sounds really slickly produced. It is a fun album. It's got lots of drinking songs, but it's still very clear, crisp and clear and his voice is processed. This is not any of that. And so that's why I think this one really it stands the test of time because it is timeless. And it's kind of like we, Scott and I and you, Mike, have talked about Star Wars, that it, Star Wars seems timeless because it is not of its time. It's, it's, it stands above it. And I think this, this album really does that as well. It breaks your understanding and idea of, of what is around it and, and stands alone. Well, yeah. Really well, it's time. It's timeless. It's got that that feel. And he he just he hits all the notes. And I think it's just one of those things. Of this is just a. He really said what he wanted to say in this album, and he said it how he wanted to say it. And I think that the well, go back to Shotgun Willie. Like the there's this line from Shotgun Willie, and uh, you know he just says you can't make a record if you ain't got nothing to say. And he really had something to say on this. He really had a story to tell. And he, and he takes his time. You know, and yeah, it's only 30 minutes. But he really sits down. And he feels like he's taking his time. He's walking you through the story. He's singing you these songs. And it really sounds like he, he's singing to you. I mean, he just, there's, it's just, there's a vulnerability and a connection you get in this, in this album. And I think that that's what resonates with people. And I, I love Chet Flippo's review. I think it's one of my favorite reviews of, you know, uh, it's almost gospel. And and I think that that's, that's who Willie is. So you're seeing who he is. You're seeing what he thinks about in stories. Now, I will point yeah. out that this album is about a man who kills multiple women and <laughs> and then finds love and redemption. So it is about a... I don't know if it's technically a serial killer, but <laughs> if three well, people makes killer. a serial... Uh, it, it's also not advocating any of those actions. No. So. No, no. But what I was going to say is that Willie Nelson, uh, if you go back and listen to the history of Willie Nelson, he's had complicated relationships with women. Is a is, uh, and and even with other people. And taxes. And, and, and taxes. No, well, everybody got in trouble with that tax loophole. That we we really kind of demystified that one. But but his first so for instance, his first wife, uh, when he was sleeping, possibly was drunk. Um, she sewed him up inside of a bedsheet. And then she took a broom and she beat the beat the hell out of him. So, 
So, I mean, like, it's like Willie Nelson and women, they have complicated relationships. He had an abusive son, and like, and that Shotgun Willie is all about, like, his abusive son-in-law that he got into multiple shootouts with. So I think, like, he's very real in what he talks about in these songs, and they're very real emotions. So I think he's he's just a very sensitive and exceptional writer and performer, but he just does it his own way. He had to do it the Willie way. Like, he tried for years to fit in the system, and then when he finally could do it his way, this is what we got. And it's just, it's a, it's a beautiful album that I think stands the test of time. Hunter, in your research about Outlaw Country, did you did you see that this had a permeating effect on the other artists of his time as well as the other scenes like the Bakersfield scene? Well, it was a huge success. So money was going <laughs> to pour in for people to make more albums like this. Yeah. And also it probably fed a lot of their addictions being able to be <laughs> as successful as this. I mean, this had this had things beyond the story that I think really um, sort of had quakes throughout all of country music when nevermind comes out with nirvana everybody moves to seattle to to make it big i think this is that moment um especially when it came to i think texas really had a had a huge part in outlaw country i i I don't think that can be underplayed enough um and i think this pulled everybody back away from nashville and as far as the subject matter goes i think it it was always interesting to me about Willie is that he, while he did, he, his voice is so kind and he is a kind man, but he did have some, some of his own issues. But a lot of his songs are stories of other people. Like he uses other characters to take the place of sort of him himself. I think people were able to tell stories and he opened that up again to tell those honest stories. But he was really the one who was the best at telling other people's stories. So I'm not sure that everybody else was able to, uh, you know, took on this concept album. I think the concept album wasn't necessarily a thing that that uh, reverberated through the rest of Outlaw Country, but but definitely sort of it opened the door to stripping everything down and being honest. Well, I I think even um, you know it's funny that it was stripped it down. Like uh, I, I want to say maybe it's phases and stages. I have to go back and check. But one of those two albums. Uh, part of it was recorded in quadraphonic sound. Like there was literally like the the overproduction and piece of it. I, it's it was just one of those funny things of like, oh, why is the the big question that I couldn't really quite understand, but I do I I can't articulate. I guess is this is still considered to be like the number one country album of all time by a lot of people. So anti-authoritarian at the time. It was such a rebellious album, but yet you listen to it and it's just a bunch of old songs. And it's just a guy with a guitar singing, like very simply, like there's not, there's, you know, and it's kind of like, I guess you would put it grunge is probably right in the wheelhouse for us in terms of like a musical revolution we sort of went through, but especially that one that pulled away from the musical center of the universe. Like it's easy for, for genres to spring up in New York and LA, but to have it take place in another, in like another corner of the of the yeah. world and when nashville has such a huge pull on country and yeah a different genre comes out at a different place that pulls everything and i think that's pretty unique yeah people yeah. did not expect this to come out of texas yeah um one thing that struck me and i i hadn't listened to this album 
I don't think I'd ever listened to it all the way through until just recently. But uh, what it reminded me of very much, and just in the way that it highlights the songwriting and the you know the core artistic ability of the the person recording it, was uh, Neil Diamond's uh, comeback album, his Twelve Songs album that he did a few years ago. Oh yeah, where it was pretty much just Neil Diamond sitting there with the guitar and some piano on some of the songs, and it's just. You know, just really shines, and you just really get that core of what he is as a a songwriter and a performer, without a lot of, you know, again, a lot of the production and the, um, all of that stuff around it. And Elvis, Elvis did that too, right? Wasn't that his comeback? His uh, was it like sixty-eight comeback? Yeah, where he just put on a black leather outfit and and a guitar and sat in in a circle and just played his songs. Yeah, it's a good formula. Yeah, it is. You know, Johnny Cash used it uh, several times. He used it in, <laughs> with the Folsom Prison with the Folsom Prison albums, where it was just him and his band performing just greatest hits, basically, but to an audience that was receptive. And then he did that again in the '90s with Rick Rubin with uh, with his American records of, like Scott said, that stripped down core sound. Um, and and that's that's what this album does for Willie is is he it, it strips it down just to Willie Nelson. That's all it is. That's all it needs to be. The only thing that would have made it better if it was entirely set in Texas rather than Montana and Denver. That's my only criticism. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstaple.com and leave us some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with 2N. And I'm Scotticus. And we can find Hunter Ware. I'm at Hunter Stare. Um, and also at the Beyond Yacht Rock podcast and uh, yachtrock.com. And keep a lookout because these guys have some sweet new merchandise coming out soon. Listen to Beyond Yacht Rock. That's a great show. I just encourage everybody, go do that. And, and can we still see your, your show, Hunter? On the internet, uh, Yacht Rock, the the actual series, I believe yeah. so. Um, it's still on it, YouTube. It's it's on YouTube. My YouTube, I have a little higher def ones. Um, every now and again, they get taken down because of a song. Um, oh. So I don't know if they're all up right now. Uh, I you can still watch them at channel101.com. Um, the quality's not as good, but they're still pretty good. This is good enough. I'm gonna blame Daryl Hall for taking it down. <laughs> they were all throw it up. And they were all shot in uh, standard def, so they, yeah. they can only get as good as as the uh, technology at the time. Oh, no, they're so much better than the technology at the time. <laughs> all right. Hey, you love Willie Nelson, and you love this show, and I hope you like Yacht Rock, too. So tell your friends, and please leave a review on iTunes, because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support our show financially, go to patreon.com slash Podcast where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs> <laughs>